Open your Bibles this morning, the book of Acts, chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. As you remember, last week, uh, Peter and John had been imprisoned and were confronted at the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, and then were released. And it says in chapter 4, verse 32, it says, all the believers in the aftermath of everything that had gone on, the preaching of the gospel, those that accepted, the religious leaders that had rejected, all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had, and with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. As I said, Peter and John have recently been commanded by the religious leaders to cease teaching about Jesus. So what did they do? They continued to tell others. They continued to teach. They continued to tell others that Jesus was alive, that he had risen from the dead. And what Luke tells us here is that they not only continued to teach, but they continued to teach powerfully. And look at the description of the church as a function of that power displayed. They were unified. They were like-minded. They were all given to the advance of the kingdom. And they shared the same heart of love. That's primarily what they shared in common was they all had that mark, that fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, the love of Jesus Christ. They loved as Jesus loved because that's what the Spirit does. So Luke goes on to say that God's grace was working powerfully among them and that as a result of that grace, that love displayed, there were no needy among them. No one went hungry. No one slept under the bridge. No one lacked for food clothing, or shelter, because as need arose, those who had resource sold their resources, and they brought the proceeds to the apostles for distribution to those that were in need. The key to understanding what's taking place here is in verse, 20, or verse 32, where it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they have. Some have said when they've read this passage of scripture, you know, it sounds like socialism or communism or, you know, they had everything in common, some sort of communal living where you just come in and you surrender everything that you have and go, just give me what I have need. But socialism seeks income redistribution to make things equal. And you, you hear a lot of that in political circles these days. Communism is when all the property, everything is owned by the state, you're employed by the state, and the state determines what you need and pays you accordingly. What's being described here has no state, no political component to it at all. And the surrender of property was entirely at the discretion of the members of the church. These were people who were unified by the Spirit of God, who were not content to see those among them in need. When need did arise, those who had property, who were not obligated to sell, willingly surrendered their rights to it by bringing the proceeds of the sale to the apostles so that the apostles could give and distribute to anybody 
that had need. Again, this is entirely and completely motivated by the Spirit of God, the source of their unity. Further, I would suggest to you that no one claimed their possessions as their own because they realized when they entered into relationship with Jesus Christ that they surrendered all of their rights over to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Their possessions were not their own because they had given them over to be disposed of by the Holy Spirit. It is that, that idea that, God, all I am and, and all I own is yours. You direct me. You spend what I have. You spend what I own. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, verse 5, we've looked at this verse in the past, referring to the giving of the Macedonian church as an example, Paul wrote, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own because like the Macedonians, they had given themselves first to the Lord, and then as the Spirit of God directed them to give. Imagine if everyone in the body of Christ was serious about surrendering their lives and their property to the Holy Spirit's leadership, that no one claimed any of their possessions as their own. You know, that idea of, well, that's mine. I'm not letting go of that, you know. Nobody claimed any of their possessions as their own. How would that affect the way that you spend? How would that affect the way that you live your life? Who might move into your home? Who might the Holy Spirit say, this one needs shelter? And I'm not suggesting you move a homeless family into your 900-square-foot condo. Debbie and I lived in one. There was no extra room, especially when the grandkids came over, but in the house in which we raised our children, when our children were grown and gone, we had three empty bedrooms, and the question arose, to whom might you lend your car, or to whom might you give a car? I, I know some in the church that have done precisely these things. They saw a need, and they had resource to meet that need, and they in a very quiet and unassuming way met the need in ways that I would learn about. Where'd you get that car? So-and-so gave it to me. I was talking with a friend last week who was telling me that he had saved $13,000 to buy a boat. He'd always wanted a, a fishing boat, and so he had saved up. He wasn't, he was going to be frugal. He wasn't going to buy one brand new. He's going to buy a used one, do what he intended to pay for it, and so he wasn't going to borrow to pay for it. He was going to pay cash to pay for it, you know. So he had saved his money up to buy this boat. And he found the boat. And he negotiated the price on the boat. And then he told me, he says, I, I got to thinking, man, $13,000. He negotiated a price of 12 and change. You know, how might God use that money otherwise? How might that money be used for the furtherance of the gospel? I want to suggest to you, and I, I don't know what he has decided to do about the boat, but that question in and of itself is the move of the Holy Spirit in someone's life when it comes to, to spending money, when you surrender your material possessions and your financial resources to God, he will give you liberty to spend. And, and maybe God wants my friend 
to buy the boat. I mean, there's nothing wrong with buying the boat. Maybe God wants my friend to buy the boat and invest himself in teaching young men how to fish. I mean, that would be a great way to use a resource that God's given you. I don't know, and I won't judge him whether he buys the boat or not. God's got to lead him as God has to lead us in the way that we spend our resources. What I know is that when God is given control of our resources, he will use them in ways that we never would have apart from the leadership of the Spirit of God. During the years I've been a follower of Jesus, I've been the recipient of a great deal of generosity on the part of others. I always recognized it was God's provision, and I was always very grateful to those who used what God had provided them to meet need in my life as they looked and they saw the need. Grateful for their surrender of their property and their finances to the leadership of God. Experiencing God's provision that way taught me the responsibility that I have to make my finances and my resources available to God, just as I've seen that demonstrated in my own life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul addresses an issue of sexual immorality among the Christians in Corinth. And in verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul tells the Christians at Corinth, you have no right to do as you please with your body. By the way, this is a, this is a pro-choice argument, right? These are Our bodies, we have the right to do with them as we please. If we don't want a baby in our bodies, it is our right to have it removed. It's precisely what the Corinthians were saying in their sexual immorality. These are our bodies. Paul says, no, no, those are not your bodies to do with as you please. Paul would say, if you were a follower of Jesus, you no longer belong to yourself. Your body does not belong to you. You were bought with a price, the shed blood of Jesus. So honor God with that body. Do with that body as God would have you do with that body. I believe Paul's thoughts go much deeper than just the stewardship of our bodies. Paul would say, you're not your own. Therefore, honor God with your life, with every resource that God has allowed you in this life that you live. If we are true followers of Jesus, then all that we are and all that we own comes from God's hand and rightly belongs to him. We belong to God. This was the understanding of the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas understood this. In verse 36, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas saw need in the church, and he made his resources available to God. But then we have this other example in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This episode that, that some would say, man, this looks kind of... This looks like a, kind of a reckless thing. If you really want to form a church, if you really want to draw people into the church, is this the best way to do it? But God knew what he was doing. In Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They saw the example of Barnabas, and so 
They went out and sold a piece of property that they owned. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, and he brought the rest, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard about what happened. And then some young men came forward. They wrapped up his body. They carried him out and they buried him. In verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land that you sold? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of God? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You have to wonder what motivated Ananias and Sapphira. Did, did they see a need in the church that they, they legitimately wanted to be a part of meeting? Or, or did they see the good feelings that others had for Barnabas in the aftermath of his gift-giving? Did they long for the same attention that had come Barnabas' way? Did they just want to be well thought of? We, we won't know this side of heaven. Not sure we'll be interested when we get there. But what we do know is that they were unwilling to relinquish all of the proceeds of the sale of the property. And, and that they kept that secret. They were duplicitous in the presenting of the proceeds. And there was no requirement that they do any of this. Peter makes that clear. The property was theirs to do with as they pleased. Once sold, the money was theirs to do with as they pleased. They chose to give some of the money to the needs of the church, but they misrepresented the gift. They wanted those aware of the gift to believe that they had given all of the proceeds from the sale. They wanted others to think them more generous than they actually were. They wanted others to think them more spiritual than they actually were. They were pretentious. They were pretending to do one thing, to be one thing, generous, committed followers of Jesus, when in actuality they were something entirely different. They were pretentious hypocrites, pretending to be one thing when in actuality another. The actions of Ananias and Sapphira are all too common. We all belong to God, but apart from the Holy Spirit, we live for ourselves. Man, that's the position we default to. It's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They, they lived for themselves, unsurrendered to God, their resources not given to God. They spent in ways that they felt benefited themselves with no real concern for what God thought, just the Thus, the question begged, 
What in the world motivated them to do what they did? They weren't thinking in terms of how will God feel about this? And the proof of this is when they were asked about their giving, they just, they lied. Yes, that's all of the money we gave every dime that we received from the sale of the property after representing themselves as committed members of the community. They were embarrassed to admit that they withheld some of the proceeds from the sale of the property. They were unwilling to acknowledge their greed that they couldn't give it all over. They had to keep some for themselves. They could have given a portion of the proceeds and said, here's our gift. Is this all the money you got from the sale of property? No, no. This is half of the money that we got from the sale of the property. Here is our gift. But they chose to lie. The root of their sin is in their lack of surrender to God. They, they never consulted with God about the sale of the property how, or how much of the proceeds from the sale of the property that they should give. They weren't guided by the Spirit in their actions. They didn't view the resources God had given them as things which belonged to God. They were their things to sell and do with as they pleased because of their hypocrisy, their pretense. They paid a high price. God doesn't look kindly on those who pretend to be committed to his people and his purposes. Hypocrites was a favored word that Jesus used for the religious leaders of his day. Ten times in the gospel, he addresses the religious leaders as such. They pretended to be concerned about the spiritual health of the nation, but in reality, the vast majority of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were more concerned about themselves, really, than they were about anyone else. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 23, 25. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. This describes Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted to be perceived as fully devoted followers of Jesus, fully committed members of the body of Christ, generous givers to that which was near to the heart of God. But in reality, they looked to others, they, 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 however they may have looked to others, however clean they may have looked to others, committed, fully devoted they may have appeared to others, they were filthy inside. They were full of greed, self-indulgence, pretense, and hypocrisy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul said to the, to the church at Corinth, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So how do you fail the test? If you examine yourself and you realize that Jesus Christ is not in you, if, if, if you examine your life and what you see is self-indulgence, and pretense when you realize that you've been a hypocrite, pretending a concern for the things of Christ, but more given to yourself. I'm unaware of any repetition of the event with Ananias and Sapphira. We do not read of anyone else dropping dead as a result of their duplicitous, pretentious, hypocritical, sinful behavior. But clearly, God judged the behavior of Ananias and Sapphira, and he punished them severely for it. God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is a picture 
to us of God's judgment of all people at the end of time. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that there will be a judgment that will take place of all of us. We'll all be judged for our pretense, for our duplicity, for our sinfulness, our self-indulgence, our, our hypocrisy, and only the shed blood of Jesus will suffice as payment for those things that, that have taken place in all of our lives. And the seal of that salvation is the Holy Spirit of God within you, the one who motivates a love and a compassion that self-sacrifices. This is, this is how you know when you self-examine. When you self-examine, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to see these things in your life at places. But the Holy Spirit brings conviction of those things. And, and that's how you know when you self-examine that Christ is there because the Holy Spirit's there and the shed blood covers. We all belong to God. We all live for ourselves at times. God's judgment is a fearful thing. It says the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and their tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. People heard about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Luke says fear seized both the church and seized those outside of the church who heard about the event. I'm sure, I'm confident that if something similar happened here today, if someone misrepresented themselves to God and dropped dead here in the auditorium, everyone in here would be seized with fear. If, if, we, if we divined the circumstances, if it was clear to us that this individual had offended God and they dropped dead right in their very midst, fear would seize us as we saw visually the judgment of God on one who had been an offense. The suddenness and the, the severity of such an event would be a sobering thing for all of us. And, and my guess is we would all start examining ourselves. I read an article over the weekend about megachurch pastors who, who dress hip, you know, and their wardrobe, part of their wardrobe is expensive sneakers this guy started an Instagram account called Pastor's Sneakers, at Pastor's Sneakers. And so he posts pictures of pastors wearing expensive sneakers like, I had no idea sneakers cost this much. $1,000 pair of Nike Jordans, limited edition Jordans. He had a picture up of, of one very hip pastor who was wearing a pair of $4,000 Yeezys. For those of you that don't know, that's Kanye West's uh, fashion line. $4,000 pair of sneakers. And when I first looked at this, I looked and I went, you must be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. I would never do that. <laughs> you know, it's so, it's so easy to examine everybody else. It's so easy to look at other people and say, I'd never do that. I'm, I'm better than they are. My shoes aren't nearly as expensive as theirs. I'm better 
than they are to find some silly, superficial reason for why you're better than someone else, to look at someone from a different socioeconomic strata and go, wow, I wonder how they got there. To look at someone that's gotten crossways with the law and go, boy, I'd never do that. I'd never find myself in that position. To look at someone else and look down at them, to look with some disdain. And what it's all about is looking and thinking yourself better than others. I looked at that picture with disgust and disdain. And then in the next second, I said, Debbie, where's my blind spot? What am I missing? What am I missing? What would somebody look at me at? What would someone looking at me say, I'd never do that? And she assured me it had absolutely nothing to do with my wardrobe. (laughs) But I do have blind spots. I do have blind spots. I don't want to live my life being frustrated with everyone else on the highway, blowing my horn when others are inconveniencing me, muttering when I'm not blowing my horn, and in the process making life all about me every time I get behind the wheel of a car. I I don't want to be unaware of those around me or insensitive to their needs because of some press of time that's going on, some schedule that I've got that I'm bound to because that's all about me. I don't want to be unwilling to love others like Jesus did, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their color, their brand, their ethnicity, the language they speak or the part of the world they live in, how they look, how they smell, how large they are or how small they are, their IQ high or low, to fail to love the people that Jesus loves, the people that Jesus puts in our path that he expects us to be given to loving. To fail to do that is to live the most self-centered of lives. The follower of Jesus is self-examining on a regular basis and reminded of failure by way of that self-exam. They are course-correcting, confessing, repenting of sin, and aligning themselves with the heart of God. And we, God, we all belong to God. We all live self-centered lives, and God's punishment is, is severe for those that refuse to live in accord with him, but he calls us, man, examine yourself, because that's not what he wants for us. He wants us living in relationship with him and experiencing the power of what it means to live in relationship with him. Here in this passage, God's power is demonstrated mightily in the aftermath of the death of Ananias and Sapphira's Many are are not daring. They don't dare to get close to the church because they're looking and they're going, man, that's a a dangerous place to be. The the folks that are part of the body of Christ, man, that's a reckless group. They never know when they're going to drop dead. But there are many others that saw the truth of the matter. They saw liberty in being a part of the church. And as a result, many believed and were added to the church. They saw the love in the church. They saw individuals that were, that were loving each other and self-sacrificing to help each other. 
As a result, many believed and were added to the church. People came, crowds gathered, the sick were healed. Those with tormented spirits were were healed of the, the torment. Those who chose to follow God were privileged to see up close and personal the power of God displayed. And he still wants to display his power today in a body of Christ unified by the love that comes from that same spirit of God. Listen, you belong to God whether you acknowledge him or not. And in light of acknowledgement of him, it's a dangerous thing to live pretentiously, pretending you love God, but but really loving yourself more and and demonstrating that by the way that you, you live your life. Judgment is assured. I promise you, judgment will happen in all likelihood, not as it did with Ananias and Sapphira, but I'm not going to try God. But judgment will happen that way or at the end of time, one way or the other. So too will God's power be displayed. I choose to live with confidence in forgiven sin, examining regularly, looking for opportunities to see God's power displayed and to be a part of that. What about you? You stand. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's where the power is displayed. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's where the liberty is realized. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that's where the the love becomes real. And I want to invite you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And I want to invite all of us to self-examine. And if you've not engaged in some contemplative self-examination lately, if you've not said to the Holy Spirit, Lord, search my heart. Man, search me and, and try me and reveal any wicked way within me. Where's my blind spot? Am I looking down at other people thinking I'm better than other people for some reason or another? Because I know I'm not. I know you made all people, and I'm no better than anyone else. The only thing that I can lay claim to, the only boast I have is in Jesus Christ. That's all I have is you. Self-examine this morning. Search your heart. And if God's speaking to you about change that needs to be made, make it. Make it today. Find yourself aligned with the will of God today. Don't hesitate. Man, make, make change. Confess, repent, align yourself with God now. Respond to God this morning.